Welcome to Achieve Wealth through value-add real estate investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hi, listeners and audience. This is James Kandasamy from Achieve Wealth through Value at Real Estate Investing Podcast. Today, we have Brian Hamrick. Brian owns 370 units, which are two-thirds of it is uh, syndicated. Uh, the remaining is owned by himself. He's from Grand Rapids, Michigan. He does multifamily, self-storage, and also non-performing notes. And Brian is also past president of Rental Properties Owner Association. Hey, Brian, welcome to the show. Hey, James. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Really happy to have you here. I mean, you have been podcasting for past three years. You have a really good audience because I remember after showing up in on your podcast, a lot of people did contact me. So I'm, I'm sure a lot of people love your podcast as well. That's fantastic. I'm glad to hear that. Yes. So can we go a bit more detail into what is this Rental Property Owner Association? How do they add value to you know, syndicators or landlords or tenants, you know, can you describe a bit more on that? Sure. Uh, the, the Rental Property Owners Association, which which I'm past president of, I'm currently on the executive committee and I sit on a number of different committees. They're a landlord uh, representation organization. So um, we also work a lot with real estate investors and provide all kinds of training for both landlords and real estate investors. Every year we have an annual conference where we have national speakers come in and talk about all different types of investing uh, asset classes and whatnot. And really, uh, the, I got involved with it because when I moved here to Grand Rapids 15 years ago, I was looking for a professional organization that I could become part of that would help me network with other professionals in the industry, people who owned rental property and, and, and knew how to profit from it. And, and also just an organization that would, would help teach best practices uh, so I could learn the ropes, how to do it. And, and certainly through the Rental Property Owners Association and the people I've met there, I've, I've learned a lot. Uh, we provide a lot of training, but probably what I consider most important of all is we have um, a, a legislative committee that works with lawmakers, both local and at the state level, to help uh, push through bills that help rental property owners and also help prevent bills from becoming a reality that would hurt us. You know, anything that has to do with like rent control or, uh, you know, some of those hot button issues that, that as landlords and rental property owners, we'd like to, to avoid. Yeah, very interesting. So like New York and I think Oregon now is rent control states, if I'm not mistaken. So do they, they probably have similar association like yours in that city, I guess. That, uh, I, I would hope so. Um, it sounds like they're fighting a losing battle. <laughs> <laughs> I, as you and I both know, as rental property owners, uh, you know, I, I believe you invest out of state, out of your area. Is that correct? No, no, I'm, I'm from Austin. I invest uh, within Austin and San Antonio. So. Okay, so would you even consider investing in a city or a state that has rent control? No, of course not. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 a really detrimental to the to the the market, 
And uh, I, I think it's going to cause a lot of problems. I used to live in Santa Monica, California, where they had rent control. Mm-hmm. And you can see the, the negative results of that. Oh, Santa Monica in California, did they have rent control in the past? Yeah, a lot of the Los Angeles counties, you know, it's kind of county by county, city by city, uh, area by area, but there is rent control in Los Angeles hmm. uh, in certain areas. And you can just see how rental property owners who own buildings in rent control areas have no incentive to put money back into them. They're not putting the capital expenditures back into their property to keep them uh, in good shape because there's no incentive to do so. Uh, they, they can't raise rents. Uh, beyond a certain amount each year. And, um, you know, so why would you invest $100,000 back into your building if you're not going to get that out in, in value? Yeah, yeah, it doesn't make sense for, uh, for a business, right? So you may not run it as a business, you maybe just run it as a cash flow. I don't know, it's like a cash flow investment, I guess, right? You don't have to really spend any yeah, capital I, on it. I can see how if you've owned the property for a long time, and you have a low, you know, you bought it at the right price at the right time, you could probably be doing well with cash flow. But in, in these markets where you see a lot of rent control, it's they're, uh, they're expensive markets. So I'm not really sure uh, once rent control is instituted in these markets, what's going to incentivize new investors to come in and bring fresh money into the market. Interesting. Interesting. So coming back to your portfolio, right? So can you tell me in terms of your holdings, how much is multifamily, how much is self-storage, uh, or how many percent of each one of these, and how much is non-performing notes? Sure, sure. So multifamily is my bread and butter. I've been doing that since 2008. Uh, I moved to Grand Rapids in 2005. In 2008, the the bubble burst. You know, we we entered the Great Recession. It was a buyer's market. I bought my first 12 unit. Uh, was using my own money in the beginning. Started using other people's money, and then started syndicating. Uh, we currently have about 370 units here in the Grand Rapids area, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and that's multifamily residential. In 2018, we purchased a self-storage facility. It's about 28,000 square foot. We're currently adding another 15,000 square foot to it. And, and that's been a fantastic investment. Really love self-storage. And then, uh, I, as you mentioned, I host a podcast, the Rental Property Owner and Real Estate Investor Podcast. And one of my guests over two years ago uh, was a, a gentleman by the name of Gene Chandler. And he was investing in non-performing notes. And I, I really liked his strategy so much that I ended up investing uh, well over $300,000 with him. And the results have just been uh, fantastic. So, you know multifamily, right? And now you're doing two other asset class. So, can you tell me what this multifamily did not offer that this two other asset class offers? Well, I like you, I'm investing in my own backyard for when it comes to multifamily. And probably, well, I, I, even though I've bought and sold over 450 units in uh, 2015, I stopped buying multifamily altogether hmm. because the, the values had gone to a point where I could no longer justify syndication. I couldn't get the returns that I needed for my investors to be able to, uh, to um, uh, pay the, the, the prices that people were asking. 
Um, the last two deals I found, were, one was off market, one was kind of in between market. Uh, and I can, I can go into detail on that. But uh, uh, anything that I saw after that point, just I, I was so spoiled by the prices I was getting between 2008, 2014, that I, I started looking for other asset classes. And uh, there were probably about three years where I just sat on the fence waiting to see if, if the market would change or if something else would come along. And at, at some point, one of the people who I met through the podcast brought me a self-storage deal that he had found off market. And uh, I looked at it. I, I liked the numbers. Uh, his underwriting was, was very conservative, but the numbers were very compelling. And we ended up buying that in 2018. And just in one year of, of basically bringing the rents up to market value and um, switching to a virtual online uh, web-based management system, we were able to add over $700,000 in value to that property. Wow. So I like, I like the simplicity of managing and owning self-storage more so than, than multifamily because in multifamily you have tenants and... Mm-hmm plumbing issues and property management intensive, right? So it, it it definitely is. And the self storage, it's not when you have turnover, you're basically sweeping out a metal shed, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So it's a lot easier to, um, to manage and own and operate self storage, uh, especially when you're in a good market. And we, I think we bought in in an excellent market. It's just North of Lansing, Michigan. And, And then, uh, you know, with the, the, non-performing notes, I found a strategic partner who handled a lot of the nuts and bolts of that. And I was able to invest with him somewhat passively. So I, I enjoyed that aspect of, of investing there. And, and the returns we were getting were, were very good. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, as I mentioned in my book, right? So commercial asset classes goes in cycle, right? I mean, I know I'm a multifamily guy and you are bread and butter is multifamily, right? But if you find the right operators and other asset class, you can make a lot more money or equal amount of money as what you're making multifamily, right? So is that what you think, sir? Uh, absolutely. Finding the, the right strategic partners and other asset classes, that, that's one of the things I set my mind to when I realized, you know, I'm just not seeing the returns I want to see in multifamily and apartments in my area where I'm comfortable investing. Now, uh, have you looked at other asset classes? I did look at a few asset classes. I mean, sometimes it's, it's uh, I mean, the asset class that I looked at is also like, you know, self-storage or mobile home parks and all, but it's also in demand, right? Like, I'm, so I'm surprised to see here that you found something in 2018 because I thought self-storage is a, is a hot uh, asset class as well. Everybody's going after that as well. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was, a lucky, a lucky strike. I and mean, we've been looking for similar opportunities, but yeah, we're not finding them. What we're doing instead is building uh, ground up construction and self-storage, finding locations where the demographics are right and the, the, the need for more square footage of self-storage space is there. And then we go in and fill that need. Yeah. But I'm happy that you are looking at multifamily is not like the only asset class throughout the whole real estate cycle, right? I mean, you felt like in 2015, things have picked up, picked up and you really can't find the prices that you want and you have changed strategy, which is how an investor should be, right? You always want to look at 
what's available out there, the deal flow, and because the economy is still doing very well, there's a lot of capital out there. And it's just harder to find a great, a really making sense deal, right? I wouldn't say deals. A making sense deal in multifamily, right? Something that makes sense, right? It's just so hard to find nowadays. And Oh, absolutely. As an investor, you have to stay nimble and flexible and be open to other opportunities. Now, I know a lot of people in our field, our, our asset class of multifamily and, and apartments will find strategic partners outside of their area, like in Texas or... Mm-hmm or uh, Georgia or wherever and, and partner with strategic partners who are able to find better, better value and better uh, yields in, in, in their investments. But I've, I, I had some bad uh, experiences early on with some single families that I owned out of state. So mm-hmm. I've always been very hesitant since then to own uh, rental property, residential rental property out of state. So you like, like, you like to have that, any property within your own backyard, but you like to diversify within asset classes, right? And some people, they have one asset class, but they go across nation, right? Uh, like some people like to buy multifamily across nation, wherever it makes sense, right? But you are, you're doing it the other way around. Yeah, I, 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 since I branched out into self-storage and, and non-performing notes, I'm comfortable switching up asset classes. Awesome. So on self-storage, are you the operator? Are you the primary guy? No, my, my strategic partner is. Okay, got uh, it. He's got the it. one who, who found the deal off market, uh, okay. helped nego- he negotiated it. Uh, I basically came in uh, and uh, raised the money. We syndicated that and raised the, the funds to be able to acquire it. Got it, got it. Very interesting. And on the, sal- on the performing notes, you also the uh, you have you have a strategic partner, I would say, right? Yeah, I have a strategic partner on that. Uh, he he's the one who knows that world. He's been doing it for well over six years now, mm-hmm. and uh, really knows how to negotiate with the uh, the lender who we're purchasing a non performing note from. Uh, work with the homeowners to try to keep them in the home, uh, and 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 figure out if that's even possible. And then knows how to work, you know who the title company is that he should work with to get the, the right due diligence done. And uh, he's got the different scenarios in his head of how, how we can profit off of these notes. If we keep the homeowner in the home, what are the strategies there for us to maximize our profit? Or if we have to go through the foreclosure process, uh, how do we go about that and, and maximize our returns in that, those cases as well? Interesting. Interesting. So if you get a multifamily deal today, would you still do it? If I found a deal that made sense and, and my underwriting uh, showed that I could get the returns to my investors that, that they're accustomed to, I, I'd do it in a second. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about market and you know, sub-market selection. So you, why did you move from California to Grand Rapids, Michigan? Everybody's heading to Texas and Florida from California. <laughs> I'm from Michigan originally. Oh, you're from Michigan. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, my uh, wife is from here as well. So we met in California, but decided, okay, if we get married, start a family, we didn't want to do it in Los Angeles. Just too too uh, too busy there. Too busy. Yeah. Yeah. Busy. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, my day is just based on data that. 50% of the population, you know, uh, moved to Texas, right? And I think there's a lot, I don't know whether there's a lot more, but Texas and Florida is his favorite destination for people from California. That's what I was asking. 
the question. And how do you select the sub-market in Grand Rapids, uh, Michigan? Like when you well, find we, a deal, how do you, how do you select you know, which sub-market to really do the deal on? Well, I, because I live here, I, I'm looking within a half hour to an hour of where I live. Uh, sub-market, you know, I want to see, because Grand Rapids is very strong, uh, has very strong demographics. It's one of the, the few Midwest cities that really bounced back strong from the Great Recession. A lot of diversified manufacturing, uh, industry, furniture, uh, you know, Amway is here. It's, it's, it, we've got a lot of different um, industries and, and um, employment base here. So when I look at submarkets, I'm looking more at the neighborhoods. You know, what what's the crime rate in that neighborhood? What's the income level in that neighborhood? Uh, what what kind of rents can we command? And and you know, by the way, I'll buy B properties and C properties, uh, or you know, C minus properties that we can push into that C plus B minus range. But I, I will avoid the, the D areas. And I've seen a lot of opportunities in the D areas. And by D, I mean, you know, the, the, where you have a lot higher crime rate, where you have a lot more evictions and tenant turnover and, and problems. So uh, I, I'm just very careful about, and I, and I work with a property management company that has a good grasp of these areas. So uh, when we look at a property, we can really... Uh, get a sense of if we buy this, is there upside value? Can we improve it and get higher rents, get better residents in here? Or is it going to be bound by the neighborhood it's in that where it is now is where, just where it's going to be. Got it. Got it. Very interesting. What about uh, underwriting? I mean, how would you, when you look at a deal, like, I mean, when you are buying multifamily, right? So how would you, select the deal let's say 100 deal banks sent to you do you know how many percent of it you would reject uh right now 100 <laughs> percent no, when you're buying i'm not even looking right now uh, but what i what i'll do is i'll just i'll do a quick rule of thumb okay what's the net operating income okay uh what what's the cap rate that they're asking is there and then is there upside potential and of course, if it's if it's listed by a broker, they'll they'll always tell you, oh, the market, the rents are way under market. You can raise the rents, uh, no problem. Okay, uh, that's sometimes true, sometimes not true. But uh, I, I think I've just this area is so strong that any seller right now knows that they can get top dollar. And while there's a lot of institutions and out-of-state investors and even international investors who are willing to pay top dollar, the yields that they are willing to accept are much lower than what I'm willing to pay. So, which is why I'm not even looking at the moment. Very interesting. I, now I see it's happening across the country, right? It's not, I thought it's only happening in Texas and Florida, but it looks like across the country, that's what's happening. It's just so hard to find deals that used to make sense to us a long time ago, right? So crazy out there yeah and it, and it could just be that i'm I, i'm spoiled because i was buying during a period when i could buy at eight nine ten caps and now now when i see things at five six six and a half caps i i don't even want to consider them but 
had I bought at those those uh, cap rates between 2015 and 2017, I would have made a lot of money. So maybe I'm just uh, a little too stringent in my criteria right now. Yeah, that could be as well. <laughs> yeah, are you buying right now? Well, I mean, well, I'm still buying if I find the right deal. It's just so hard to find the deal that makes sense for my criteria. And I'm sure that's the same thing as your criteria, which I'm still buying if I find the right deal, but I'm not really rushing for it. Not like I'm, a, I'm not underwriting 100 deals, that, you know, in one month. I just, you know, whatever deal comes to me, I usually know that within the quick look, I know whether it makes sense for me to underwrite or not, right? And sometimes brokers will call me if they know that certain deal is, is something that I would do, right? That's the only deal that I look at. What what's your quick back of the napkin way of determining whether or not you want to invest in something? Um, back of the napkin is if it's an email blast, I probably won't look at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you kind of eliminate the ones that go out to everybody. Yeah, it's already yeah, everybody already shopped it, and coming on an email blast, you know, you have to go on a best and final, and best and best and final, and then there's ultimate best and final offer, which is you're shooting in the dark, right? You're basically bidding against yourself, and you know you do not know what you're doing. Right. I'm not really in a desperate mode to buy deals, you know, that goes through that kind of process. So, but I look for value add if there's a true value add deal. Uh, I mean, minus the crime rate area, right? I definitely know the area that has high crime rate. I can check it out quickly. Uh, class B and C, but um, need to have a true value add that we can go and add value, right? Mm -hmm. um, I don't really look at entry cap rate, but I look for the spread of the cap rate from the time I buy to the, the next two years kind of thing without any rent increases which is yeah i think i think part of part of my problem one of the reasons that i've just been on the fence is because we bought a value add property mm -hmm. back in 2015 mm -hmm. it was an older building built in 1920 and it was such an exhaustive process to mm -hmm. go in and add value to that property i was over there like every day <laughs> so, it is very tiring to do that value add deals to do that yeah. deep value add, I would say, right? A deep, deep value add. And, and so my bandwidth for more opportunities was just completely limited because I was so exhausted by working on this one particular project. Yes. You know, luckily, we got it to a point where we added a tremendous value to it. And we're very proud of the work we did. But uh, it, you have to weigh the opportunity costs when you do those value adds because um, sometimes they're so intensive that uh, some of the easier, the lower hanging fruit, uh, you bypass that. Correct. Yeah, I see some syndicators doing deals every month and they're not doing a deep value add or they're just doing the lighter value add, right? Or maybe they're just doing a, a, yield, a yield play, right? Or core type of deal, right? Uh, they can buy every month. Uh, they can <laughs> claim 5,000 units or 3,000 units versus we are doing deep value add. We are like at 100 and 200 and 300 units, but it's a really, really deep value add. You, you probably make a lot more money than the guy who owns 3,000 to 4,000 units, but it's a lot of work. <laughs> it sure is. Yeah, it's, it's more than just asset managing. You're, you're it's more kind of become a, a de facto developer. Developer, huge yeah. project manager, you know. Oh, yeah. Yes, so many things, right? So, but it gives you, that are the, that are the deep value, the deep value add gives you a sense of accomplishment. It does. It does. I'm very proud of the work we did on this, this particular property and more so than any of my other properties, because I, I didn't have to put nearly as much work into them.
Yeah, and the deep value becomes the case study, right? Because it truly shows your skills to turn around property, right? And people who have done deep value add, it's going to be easier for them to do the lighter value add kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's an excellent point. Yeah. So, can you name like three, uh, three? I mean, two or three uh, secret sauces to you know what's the success uh, to your success. Uh, the two or three secret sauces, sauces to my success. I'm sorry if you hear that printer going in the background there. <laughs> That's it's, okay. Uh, no worries. Hopefully that ends soon. Um, secret sauces to my success. Uh, I think doing the, the, um, the underwriting, mm-hmm. you know, running my numbers. Uh, I always like to say I, I, I like to see my numbers in bullet time. If you ever mm-hmm. saw the matrix, you know, how everything slows down and you can see it coming at you. Okay. I want to know what are the real expenses going to be after we've acquired the property. Um, a lot of mistakes that I, a lot of one particular mistake that I see a lot of investors making is they assume that the, the property tax is going to be the same as what the previous owner was paying. And that's just not the case. So, um, Right there, that's that's one of the main factors that I look at uh, right away is, well, what is the property tax going to become once I buy this property? And that eliminates 50% of the deals that I would even consider. Uh, so number one secret sauce is just really understanding the numbers, not just where they are today, but where they will be once we acquire the property. Um, uh, number two is, is having the right team. I am all about partnering with strategic partners who add value because they understand uh, inside and out the asset class that, that you're investing in. Uh, the reason I was able to ex- expand my multifamily portfolio was because I partnered with someone who owned his own property management company and managed the type of properties that I wanted to acquire. That without his assistance and without his team that really knew how to go in and do the due diligence and, and help me assess up front, what are the capital expense costs going to be? What are the true costs going to be when we acquire this property? Without that, we would have made a lot, I would have made a lot of mistakes. Uh, you know, same with self-storage. I partnered with someone who, who really, even though he's young and, and new, somewhat new to the business, he had really studied it talked to a lot of professionals, been mentored by people, and really understood inside and out how we could add value to that self-storage facility. And everything that he put in his, um, his pro forma ended up becoming a reality uh, with, a, with my non-performing note partner. I mean, he knows that world inside and out. So, so uh, when we acquire a note, uh, the first 12 that I bought with him, we only had one that we lost money on. And that was about seventeen hundred dollars. <laughs> so, out of so, how many? Uh, what's that? Out of how many notes? We bought twelve notes to start oh, with because I like to test. I like to test before I bring other investors in. Okay. So I bought twelve notes with with my partner. I JV'd with them. Uh, five of the notes, our average return was over eighty percent. Wow! Th- those are cl- to what, what timeline? A uh, year and a half. Yeah, no, okay. Well, actually, actually, well, each note is kind of on its own timeline. So I'll tell you that of the 12 notes that he and I purchased together, mm-hmm. uh, five of them are closed and paid off. Like we've made okay. our profit. 
Okay. Our average return on investment before before we split 50-50, our average return was 81%. And that included the one note that we lost $1,700 oh. on. Uh, it's some of the, some of the returns that we're getting are phenomenal. Uh, five of the notes are reperforming, which means that we were able to keep the homeowners in their homes, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. That's our number one goal. Our average return on those notes, as we collect the monthly income, is is thirty percent. Got it. Uh, and then two of them are in some form of foreclosure. In fact, we're about to sell one. Uh, we just listed it uh, today, actually. Mm. So uh, we should make a decent return on that. We always try to work with the homeowner and keep them in the home. Half the time we're able to do that. Uh, half the time it just doesn't work out. Uh, but I, but you asked me the timeline. So of those five notes that we closed and our average return was uh, 81%, the average number of days that we're, we were in each of those notes was 163 days. So that took less than half a year. So why does, I mean, that's a, that are great numbers, right? I mean, as I, even I mentioned in my book and all, find the guys in the right, find the right operator in that asset class and partner with them or invest with them, right? For passive investors, right? So as I said, in every asset class, there's always good operators, right? So so the numbers you're telling me in non-performing notes and self-storage are huge, right? I don't, I mean, I know multifamily, you can make money if the market went up and you have a really good operator, you can put a value at. But on average, not everybody making as what you just told me right now, right, on self-storage. So why is multifamily is more popular than other asset class? There's more people teaching it. <laughs> That's absolutely my point. Who's <laughs> out there teaching, I guess, right? Yeah, I mean, there, there, look, there are some excellent instructors out there in multifamily. Okay. okay. Uh, and you and I are both a part of a, a group with, with one of them. I mean, the great top notch training material. Okay. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, there's just less people out there talking. There, whereas you, you have between 10 to 20 people out there teaching multifamily, mm-hmm. you could count on one hand the number of people teaching self storage mm-hmm. or, uh, and it's, uh, even less teaching the, the non performing note world. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, it is. It is true. There's a lot more people teaching multifamily. There's a lot more boot camps, a lot more two days weekend seminar on multifamily compared to self storage or non performing notes, right? And and I think multifamily is also very simple to understand, right? It's a house, right? Or, or not many people understand what is non performing notes. Yeah, there, there's all. Yeah, there's that educational, like just understanding the, and wrapping your head around the concept. Mm-hmm. I, I got into multifamily because I understood economy of scale mm-hmm. and I understood people have to have a place to live. So if you can right. get them to pay their rent and that rent pays all your expenses plus the mortgage, uh, well, you can make a lot of money that way. Uh, and then, I, then once I understood the next level of value, which is the income valuation method, how commercial multifamily is valued based on the income method, and you can... Yeah, increase your returns exponentially if you understand that you know the the relationship between cap rate and your net operating income and value uh, that was very compelling to me and I think that still is very compelling when it comes to investing in commercial real estate whether it be multifamily or self storage uh, I think non performing notes there's a lot more perceived risk in that 
because it, it's not valued based on any, <laughs> it's hard to understand how that's valued because there's so mm -hmm. many different scenarios in which you can profit from non-performing notes that uh, you can't just say, well, we value it this way. And if you buy this note, this is what you're going to make. It's kind of a crapshoot. But if you mm -hmm. do it right and you, you partner with someone who knows how to avoid the, the, the dogs, uh, you, can, you can actually make a lot of money doing it. So what is the most valuable value add in like notes, non-performing notes? Uh, you want, you mean an example of, of one of our, well, our, not an example. I'm talking about what is the one thing that you, if you do the most, most of the time or the frequency of things that you do in a non-performing notes that you get the most value out of it. Well, yeah, it, it differs note by note. I, I'll give okay. you, I'll give you an, ex, I'll give you two examples. One is uh, a, a property that was pretty much a teardown property that we bought the note on in Middlebury, Indiana. Mm -hmm. We paid $5,000 for this note. And uh, I asked my partner, well, why would we buy this? I mean, it's $5,000. This property is a teardown. How are we going to make money on this? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, we're not buying this, pro this property for the house that's on it. We're buying it for the land because okay. it's right next door to a farm. And this farm is owned by this Amish family. Mm -hmm. So he sent a realtor over to the Amish family and uh, they ended up paying $35,000 for that note. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so after closing costs and paying the realtor and, and getting uh, our initial $5,000 investment back, our our profit was over $24,000. That represented a 245% return in, we did that in, in less than two months. Yeah, but you need to identify that opportunity, right? I mean, it's not like a, you can go and buy any deals right now, okay? Very yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, another quick example, example of how you can profit in notes, and I don't wanna say, I don't want it to lead you to believe that your best profit is always gonna be if you, foreclose or take possession of the property because you can still make a lot of money if you uh, if you can work with the homeowners uh, we we bought a note on a property in northern Michigan uh, probably about nine or ten months ago now and um, I, I believe the numbers were in the line of we paid twenty five thousand dollars for this no twenty thousand dollars for this mm -hmm. note mm -hmm. uh, got the homeowners reperforming the unpaid balance on this note is about $41,000. Once we have them seasoned for 12 months, meaning that they're paying on time for 12 months, well, they're gonna, we've been working with them with a mortgage loan originator where they can go and get new financing, put permanent financing, uh, you know, of FHA or, or a Fannie Mae type loan in place with much better interest rate, much better payments. Well, when they go do that, they're going to pay off that unpaid balance. So mm -hmm. our $19,000 investment, and now that I'm thinking about it, it was $19,000. Our $19,000 investment, we're going to get paid that $41,000 of the unpaid balance on their note, plus the, the money that they've been paying each year. So our return on that is going to be a hundred percent. And across how many years? It's actually over a hundred percent. Across how many years? How many uh, will be out of that in under 15 months? Okay, interesting. 
because they're going to refinance. And when they refinance, we get paid that unpaid balance. Got it. Got it. What about on the multifamily properties that you own in before 2015? What do you think is the most valuable value add that you really like? Well, they're, they're all great because uh, just anything I bought bef- between 2008 and 2012, I've achieved infinite return on those. Oh, okay. So and by infinite, it and you kept it? Yeah, we've, we've refinanced, pulled our initial investment out. We have no money in the properties uh, and we're collecting cash flow every month. So you can't calculate a return on that. Uh, the uh, probably one of the best examples is a 37 unit that we purchased. Mm-hmm. Uh, we bought it at a short sale in 2009 for it was about 600,000 is what we paid for it. We put a $200,000 into it right away to replace roofs, windows. Uh, it's a hodgepodge of, of uh, heating systems. There's like mm-hmm. electric baseboard heat and hot water boiler heat and then gas forced air furnace heat uh, it did just depended on which unit you were looking at so we replaced a lot of the mechanicals uh made it as much of a new property as we could as far as just the uh the, the mechanicals and the roof and the windows and we refinanced it once it, at over a 1.1 million dollar value pulled all of our initial investment out plus some some extra cash flow and then we just refinanced it again put a a a 10 year fixed loan on it through the uh, F, uh, Freddie Mac, Freddie Mac, Freddie Mac small, small apartment loan. So we got great terms on it. 30 year amortization uh, valued it, at that point, it valued over $2 million. Wow. So, so we've added a lot of value to it and, and the compression of cap rates didn't hurt either. Yeah. Yeah. That are the awesome deals, right? The deep value adds where you can go and refi and, make it infinite return because you already pulled out all your cost basis. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's, that's the goal to achieve infinite return. So <laughs> whenever we can do that, uh, that's, that's what we do. Absolutely. Aren't you worried about the state of uh, market right now in real estate in general? Uh, I, you know, I, gosh, I was more worried about it two years ago than I am now. <laughs> <laughs> Probably that. What has changed? Probably because two years ago, I was thinking, oh, it's going to turn. It's going to turn any, any minute now. And then it mm-hmm. only got better and better. Um, you and I both know Neil Bawa. Mm-hmm. We, and we, we, we talked to him at the, the last event we were at together. And, and he made a very good case for the continuation of this market. And it basically rests on the fact that the United States has the – it's one of the few – if not the only places in this in the world where you can go to get real yield on your investment. Right. We're seeing right. a lot of international money coming into the United States uh, because in their countries, they're seeing negative yield Correct. Uh, uh, or zero yield. Here, you're, even if you can still get three or 4% yield on your investments, uh, that's that's a lot great. of money. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of money. It's bringing a lot of money into this country. And that's going to prop up our, our, our values for quite a long time. On top of that, you know, I've always been, I've always fought or believed that interest rates were going to rise. Mm-hmm. And I've been believing that since 2000. Correct. And they keep going down. And even now, as we're speaking, they're talking about lowering the rate again by the end right. of the year. Yeah. So 
that interest rate risk, I, I, yeah, I, I know, I know we're, we're playing with fire here and eventually we're going to have to pay the piper, but our government seems to keep coming up with ways to prolong this, this, uh, this growth and this, this, the increase in prices. So am I, am I worried? Uh, not in the short term. No. No, I, I the economists I listen to are saying, "Oh, it's going to be a roaring twenties for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, things are really going to hit the fan in like 27, 2027, 2028, wow. Interesting. Yeah, because I think I don't know. Maybe my thoughts is similar to you. Somehow the Fed has figured out how to do quantitative easing and quantitative tightening, right? Somehow they're able to. F- go you know they're able to contract the economy and you know you know bring it down so it's very they could have found some new mechanism to keep the economy going even though our our thought process has always been real estate goes in cycle right um but at some point you will be you, you will hit an affordability issue right you can't rents can't go up all the time the prices can go up because the interest rate coming down because now you can get more cash flow but at the same time you can't keep on increasing rent because our wages are not going up so much, right? Uh, so there will be, I mean, I'm not an economist, but at some point you will hit some roadblock, but I'm not sure where is it and how is it going to come? Yeah, well, there's we're seeing a plateauing, I think, right now and just the rents that we're able to charge, mm-hmm. uh, the, the prices that people are willing to pay, but it's still, it, it, it's still a very strong market. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not going out there and just buying stuff like crazy because I am very conservative. And, and like I said, if I can't get the returns that I need to, to bring investors into my, my deals, I'm just not even looking at it. Correct, uh, correct. I do see, so I, I am, I, I don't anticipate that the market's going to have a huge correction. There might be a bump. I, th- I think if you're in a good market like Grand Rapids, uh, that bump won't be nearly as severe as some other places. But, uh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm keeping my eye on the market, but at the same time, investing conservatively, uh, in asset classes that, that I think will be able to withstand the, the next correction. Awesome. So let's go back to a personal side of things, right? So is there a proud moment in your, throughout your career in real estate that you remember for your, for your whole life? One proud moment. <laughs> One proud moment uh, they'll put on my tombstone. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that you really think that hard. Oh, I'm really proud I did that. Yeah, I, I so a couple answers. I mean, anytime we're able to go in and improve property and improve a neighborhood, uh, that that always makes me proud. You know, that we're adding value to a neighborhood and a community. Uh, the older building that I told you about here in Grand Rapids that was built in 1920, when we bought that, that was, it was very tired, very uh, kind of poorly managed, was losing money. Uh, we were able to turn that around. So I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of the fact that we also uh, fought very hard and, and worked very closely with the city to be able to put a restaurant uh, in that building. So okay. the fact that we when we bought bought it, it was uh, it was 96 apartment units and about 6,000 square foot of vacant commercial space. Oh, okay. Now we had to work with the city to get it rezoned because for some reason, because it, it had been vacant for so long, it reverted to being zoned residential. So we had to, we spent over a year 
uh, trying to get it rezoned so we could add commercial in there. But we filled up all 6,000 square foot, including a restaurant. Uh, and that, and that took about two or three years to do so. So when I think about what I'm, what I'm proud of, I think I, I'm definitely proud of that. Awesome. That's, yeah, that's hard, right? Because you're turning the zoning from residential to mixed use, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Mixed use commercial, mixed use residential commercial, um, just yeah. dealing with parking, number of parking spots and yeah. green space and tree canopies. I mean, it was, it was, a, a, it was a massive undertaking. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting that kind of project. I did one where we bought a land and we converted, we merged it with an apartment and we did so many things. It's a very unique value add that we recently refinanced. What well, was it? A lot of work for you? It was a lot of work because you had to go through of uh, you know buying the deal. You had to buy two deals at the same time. Right? One is the apartment and one is the land, and then we had to go to the city to merge these two plat. Right? Then you had to rezone it. Then you had to I mean replat it, rezone it, and then after you had to do a tree survey. You have to do so many different surveys you have to do to get that done. It's not a normal you know residential you know buy today and increase rent, uh, reduce expense kind of deal. But it's a very interesting and we pulled out 80% of our money within uh, 15 months, which is huge, right? Just by doing this creative stuff. That, that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you talk about uh, zoning and, and tree, you know. Yeah, zoning and tree and all that. So it's a whole new world and you, you, yep. it definitely is, is costly and time consuming because you have to have experts on your team. You got to bring experts like archi architects. Architects. Yeah. We brought in architect engineers. Who, yeah. Who engineers uh, who even understand what it is the city's asking for, because if you were trying to do that yourself, you just, it would be a mess. Yeah, yeah. And and the good, I mean, the good thing about what you said, you're proud and what I'm proud of, you know, this kind of process, and you know, 99% of the syndicators doesn't have that kind of experience, <laughs> right? So, yeah, no, they. I, yeah, I didn't have that kind of experience. Uh, <laughs> now I do. <laughs> Most of the time you just buy, buy a building and you, you know, look at in, increasing income and reducing expense. And after that, at some point you sell, right? But you don't do, you know, different contracts, you know, buying a land and all, doing all kinds of things. Right. So another question for you, Brian, um, why do you do what you do? I do. Uh, Why well, I, I love it. I love what I do. Um, I see it. I, I feel very entrepreneurial about it because I, I have, you know, I've been an employee uh, up until about five or six years ago. Okay. And I, I've always, whatever it was I was doing, whatever job, I always embraced it and did the best I could. Uh, but what I love about being an entrepreneur, being a, a you know, full-time real estate investor now, syndicator, asset manager, is that it's all very self-motivated. I'm the one who decides what needs to happen, uh, what, what I need to pay attention to on a day-by-day -day basis. Uh, I don't have a boss or anyone else telling me, hey, Brian, go do this. When I'm like, no, I want to go do this instead. I, <laughs> I, I get to call the shots. So I, that's what I love about it is I get to call the shots. I get to take time off if I need to take time off. Um, and I get to kind of fill my day with activities that I want to be doing. Awesome. Hey, Brian, you want to tell our listeners and audience how to get hold of you? Sure, James. Uh, first of all, uh, you can go to my website, which is higinvestor.com. That's Hig is Hamrick Investment Group. So I'll spell it for you. It's H-I-G-I-N-V-E-S-T-O-R.com. That's higinvestor.com. 
you can uh, also listen to my podcast. Uh, and James, you've been a guest on there. Yep. So uh, uh, you can definitely listen to me interview James. It's the Rental Property Owner and Real Estate Investor Podcast. And it's sponsored by the RPOA, which we, we began this conversation talking about. Um, and you, if you want to get in touch with me, you can also email me, brian at higinvestor.com. That's B-R-I-A-N at H-I-G. Investor.com. Awesome, Brian. Thanks for coming in and adding value to my listeners and audience and to myself as well. And kind of things uh, from our discussion here. Uh, I think that's it. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, James. It's been a pleasure. It's a lot of fun. Thank you. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audiobook. It's the audio version of his best selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.